my hope and belief is that when this is over, the places like the theater where we commune are going to explode with people. I hope that that's the way that it goes. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week, we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find lists of upcoming guests. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we can't do our podcast in front of the live audience, but we didn't want to stop bringing you something new to listen to while you're stuck at home. You can submit a question via Twitter for one of our upcoming guests. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag live at the Lortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. All right, well, let's welcome our guest today on our new way to do this podcast, uh, Jonathan Groff. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it and have to thank our mutual friend, Jill, for setting this up. She's the best. Oh my gosh, she's hilarious. I love Jill. One of the funniest people I know and a really good friend and a, a big supporter of the podcast. So we started this podcast to shed the light on Off-Broadway and, you know, spotlight it, bring it to the forefront of what's going on. I feel so many of the podcasts focus in on Broadway and what's going on there. So we chose to do this at the Lortel to spotlight what goes on Off-Broadway. And you just obviously finished a huge gig doing Little Shapaharas. I love that it brings a smile to your face. when, when you, <laughs> How did Little Shapaharas come your way? When did you hear about it? When did Michael bring it to you? Do you remember? I do. I remember the exact moment. It was May of last year's 2019. We were seeing an opera at the Met and it was during one of the intermissions that he said, I think I found our next project together because we haven't done a full-on production together in I think it's been 14 years since Spring Awakening, but we've remained very close friends through the years. And he just sort of floated that and said, I think I found our next thing. I'm going to be calling you next week with our next project if it's something you'd be interested in. Almost exactly a week later, he called me. Do you want to play Seymour in Little Strap of Horrors? And I was completely shocked. And he pitched his idea, his concept of the show, which was returning the show to its off-Broadway roots and doing it at the West Side Theater, which is a 270-seat theater, knowing it was going to be a commercial off-Broadway run and never move to Broadway. And his pitch was, I want to return the show to its roots. I want to do a show for the reason we all used to want to do shows, which was just to have the time of our lives and have a great time. This isn't going to further anybody's career or make anyone a lot of money. This is, this is for the enjoyment of doing to celebrate this brilliant piece of material. I was sold from the first phone call, to be perfectly honest. Was this a role that you, what is your past with Little Shapaharas? Look, I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm Little Shapaharas obsessed. It was something <laughs> that was brought up on and another shameful, you know, I saw it, your production seven times. I know I became that like 15 year old girl who, you know, I didn't wait at the stage door for you, but I will say that I just think it is the perfect musical. I completely agree. 
I love that you saw it so many times. I love that. And I would make sure, you know, I tried to sit somewhere differently every time so I can kind of get a different vantage point. But I got to say the best was the front row, with, without a doubt. I made sure I went, it was pouring rain, and I didn't... <laughs> Wait, what, what's your background with Little Shop? I mean, obviously, you know the show being an actor, but what's your past with it? So it was really interesting because I used to watch it on VHS rented from the Blockbuster and I would put it on. I really remember it was sixth or seventh grade and I would come home from school and my parents wouldn't be home yet. And my brother was still in high school, so he wasn't home yet. And I would put in the VHS and I would sing the Skid Row song with Rick Moranis, someone show me a way to get out of here, that whole thing, and cry and stand in the kitchen and just rewind that song over and over again and cry. So I had that kind of primal connection to it. I saw the year I moved to New York was the year that the revival happened on Broadway. And I saw the first preview of the Broadway revival of it. And really, that was the first time I'd ever been in the audience of the first preview of a Broadway show. and. And it was a little shop and all the fans of the show were there and it was like a rock concert. And so I really remember that. It might be my favorite thing I've ever done. I just loved coming to that theater every day to do that amazing piece and work with just the most incredible group of actors. We had the best time. The honeymoon was never over. And when I left the show at the end of January, I've never cried harder leaving a show. And I actually I, I like broke down in the beginning of the show <laughs> and had trouble. I couldn't even sing. I, I cried so hard. So it really was, it was such a meaningful experience. And we had Sarah and Bill who, you know, run the Howard Ashman estate. Sarah was as Howard Ashman's sister and Bill is his widower. And they were there and Alan Menken was there. And Tom Curtahy, who was our producer, did the speech on the first day saying, you know, I remember when this show was at the Orpheum in the 80s and people were dying of AIDS and this is where I would go. This was my happy place. This was my joyful place. And there was just a real magic around and I'm, I'm excited, you know, for the show to, to get back on the boards again once all the coronavirus craziness is over because it's such a, it's such a, it's such a joyful show and a joyful experience. And in that tiny little theater, it was such a explosive, unparalleled, night out i think it is a perfect two hours in the theater and you know really quickly at 13 for my bar mitzvah gift my aunt i would hope that lots of gay kids have a cool aunt you know not mad <laughs> had a lot of gay friends and she brought me to the orpheum theater and i remember we were thinking i was sitting on on the aisle in the second row and i could smell i can to this day i can still smell the way the Orpheum, the carpet and the seat. Wow. Electricity in it. And I remember looking around in the theater and my aunt saying, you know, do you have any questions about what you're looking at? I mean, it was just filled with gay men. And yeah. I, I was like, well, what, what's, she's like, well, you know, that's what we call, you know, a leather queen. And that's what we call a, oh, a show God, queen. That is I remember... And then I remember, you know, the, the lights went down and Ellen Green came out. And I just remember the experience. So sitting in the theater, especially for the first time and seeing your production, which was so intimate, there were so many things that I did not remember, which was especially for you and Tammy of Audrey and Seymour. They go on such this journey and they mm. really change. I mean, both of them go through such incredible change. And 
especially that last scene when you're both so in it. I mean, thinking about it, it can get emotional, but the two of you together were, were electric, especially that moment when you take the leather jacket out of the box and she looks at you. You both reinvented these roles so beautifully and incredibly. It was an honor to watch. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, I could do an entire podcast, an entire podcast series about my obsession with Tammy Blanchard. Oh, which I, is like you can host it. I'll be your guest. I I could not. <laughs> she, I, 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 oh, I just absolutely adore her. She cannot lie on stage. She can't lie. She is all guts and heart. And when so so when Gideon Glick came in for two weeks in November, when I went to go to the Frozen Two press tour, we had a drink after this after he had after I had gotten back and he was done with his run to sort of just like you know bond over the fact that we both played that part. And he was saying, "Oh my God, to be on stage with Christian and with Tammy and to look into their eyes and it, it really is just one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. They're they're just it's hard to even really put into words how what it, what the experience is with getting to do eight times a week with them and that energy that gets exchanged. And you get it in the audience too at the West Side because you, you're so close. We're all sort of having that experience together. It's really, it was really something else. Yeah, to hear, you know, the, the last time I saw it, I, I, my friend Mary Beth Peel and Mary Beth had never seen like a, a real like full production. She didn't see it at the Orpheum and she could not believe it. And at the end there, when you have Audrey in your arms, you know, I, I looked to the left of Mary Beth and she was, she's like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know what, what this was really going in. And oh. it just was, um, anyway. Just to do a quick little thing about that, that yeah, I, you know, cause in the movie, they both, they live. And so if you're used to seeing the movie, you're used to the kind of quirky fairy tale ending. But the thing that is so tragic about the, to me, the character of Audrey and what Tammy brings to it emotionally is that it's like, she, she, you just, she's never going to get out of that self hating, self-destructive thing. And you see like the brief shining moment of her, you know, accepting love and accepting sweet understanding, like they say at the end of that song. And she has it for a minute in her hands and then it just slips away. And when she sings that reprise at the end, you know, it's just, it is so tragic. It's like a Greek tragedy. And your reaction to it and the real love that the two of you showed on stage was for me, life-changing. I'll remember those performances for the rest of my life. So I thank you for it. And um, oh, thanks, Eric. Let's go back a little bit in your career. You grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, correct? Correct. Yes, that's where I'm broadcasting from right now. <laughs> and your your parents still live there on a farm? Yep. My dad trains and races horses for a living, and my mom is a retired gym teacher. So you obviously grew up there. You were doing a lot of theater in and around that area, right? Yes. There was two theaters here that I worked at. One is called the Ephrata Performing Arts Center. That's a tried and true community theater. It's about the size of the West Side Theater, maybe a little bit bigger. I think it's about 300 seats. And then there's another theater here called the Fulton Opera House, which is a professional equity theater that from when I started working there in, in 1999, they started jobbing in actors from New York, you know, equity contracts, equity actors. And so I learned a lot from getting to be in the ensemble of those shows and working the stage crew and 
meeting actors from New York and sort of learning about the business. And my first roommate in New York was a woman that I met through the Fulton Opera House. Valuable kind of bridge for me from, from Lancaster to New York, that particular theater. So obviously you got bit at a very young age to, I know yeah. you're Disney obsessed and uh, I, there's a video on you online dressed up as Mary Poppins. You've seen it. I'm sure somebody in your family must have released that video, right? <laughs> yeah, I did actually. Because I, I was on the Colbert show and Judy, Julie Andrews was the other guest. And I was like, oh my God, I have footage of me dressed as Julie Andrews. So offered up that old home video. I just watched it today. It's so adorable. So you you did all the shows there, obviously musical and theater. And then from when did you go to New York? What was the, when did you come to New York to start working and start being an actor there? So my senior year of high school, I through sort of the connections and the information I acquired at the Fulton Opera House, learned about Backstage Magazine. In my senior year of high school, I went to auditions in New York to practice auditioning for my college auditions. And the first audition I went on was an open cattle call for a non-union tour of bus and truck tour of The Sound of Music. So I got the role of Rolf in that and spent the year after high school on that tour. And then and then came to New York when I was done with that tour and waited tables and used the money that I made on the tour to survive in New York. So not really knowing anything, but obviously your connection with all the New York actors that came into Pennsylvania and your experience on the tour sort of translated to being in New York. So you had some connections there. You weren't just a fish out of water. You could have people you could reference and ask questions and you just would go on cold auditions through backstage and you got yourself an agent, et cetera. Yep. I got my equity card at doing Fame the Musical at North Shore Music Theater which was really exciting. And yeah, I just kind of, you know, did it old school with just like coming straight to New York. And when I had done the, the Sound of Music tour, I really remember it being like a month and a half into the run. And that had been the longest run I had ever done. And I started to learn how to do eight shows a week. And I started to gain a sort of sense of confidence and a sort of sense of technique and trying to keep it fresh. And I learned so much in the community theater experiences on the job. And that really is where all my kind of training has come from, has been sort of getting thrown into it in kind of a sink or swim way and figuring out how to swim. So you just obviously did it. You want to talk a little bit about how important it is to kind of, obviously you're working at theaters and for students that listen to this and young actors, I think it's important for you to talk about how important it is to kind of start as an apprentice or stop, start with props or kind of people think it's just kind of so easy. Well, maybe not now to just go, Oh, I'm going to New York next week. I'm going to be an actor. So I would say it's really like, it's, it's interesting because I, I, for me personally, and it's different for everyone, but for me personally, I really found practical experience, the best learning tool. So being in a theater that's actually putting on productions for a live audience. I took, you know, the occasional class here and there, and I know that classwork has been greatly beneficial to a lot of my friends and teachers. But for me, the experience of performing in front of a live audience or being around that environment has always been the, the best kind of learning 
tool. You know, when I moved here and I got a job waiting tables, I started collecting for Broadway Cares. And so I would go to the theaters early and watch the second act of shows. Even in The Sound of Music, it's so funny because I, I do learn so much from watching. And when I was in the Fulton Opera House, I would stand in the wings. I would watch every show from the wings. In particular, I did the Pirates of Penzance and I was only a tap dancing cop in the second act so i was not on stage for the first act so i would go into the balcony and watch the show every day during the sound of music tour ralph was only in about 10 minutes of it in total so i would watch you know the show from the wings to see how it evolved i mean that went all the way up to hamilton when i was playing king george both off broadway at the public theater and on broadway i would sneak into the audience at the public i could watch from the vom which was right below the audience without being in anyone's eyesight. And then on Broadway, I would sneak into the box and peek through the curtain behind people sitting there in the box seats and watch the entire show because I just wanted to soak up all the information you can get from hearing how an audience re responds to things and, and listening to what makes, you know, Hamilton, you could listen to it a million times and never fully grasp every little brilliant detail of that show. So just kind of like being a sponge and soaking it all in from the real world experiences has always been really inspiring to me. So you weren't just sitting backstage, you know, reading a book, you were listening to every line, what works tonight, what doesn't work. It's an incredible experience just to be able to watch every moment. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say off Broadway, I watched every performance of for this is for Hamilton. And then when we moved to Broadway, I would say for the first like, three months I was watching every performance and then it's funny you said reading books because I was like I want to this is also such a great opportunity to read every like great novel that I've always wanted to read and never have and so then I would sort of alternate between reading books and then going out and watching the show kind of like dealer's choice on any given evening. Now that we're talking about Hamilton, I think it's obviously the show now is legend, but speak a little bit about how it came to you and your, uh, let's talk a little bit about your journey with it. We could be, we could talk about Hamilton too for hours as well. Well, it's kind of interesting actually, as it, as it relates to off Broadway yeah, in that, right. you know, it started at the Newman Theater at the public, or the same theater that Chorus Line started in. And it was this big sort of, adventurous musical my personal experience was brian darcy james was playing the king and then his broadway show something rotten got fast tracked to broadway and so a week after they opened he was going to be leaving and they found this out when they were in rehearsal that this was going to happen and so lynn and said hey would you want to come play the king in hamilton it's not a lot of stuff to learn and you'd be like really doing us a favor if you could just come in and do the last two months of the off-Broadway run. I didn't know what Hamilton was. A lot of people didn't at that time because they were still in rehearsal. I said yes without reading it or seeing it or hearing anything. And then I learned, they only sent me the songs that I sing in the show. And so I was kind of learning the show in a bubble and I showed up and saw the show and then two days later went into the show and so I had no sense of character. I didn't know that I had to have a British accent because I thought, you know, George Washington is black. Like, I, I just like, I'm, I was thinking I was like 30, 30 years old at the time playing King George III in a, in a white wig. So I didn't know that, it, I didn't realize the context of what the character was, I didn't know I had an accent. So when I went out on stage the first time, the first night, Lynn said it was like I had won a contest to be in Hamilton. 
because I had no, I just like came out in this king costume kind of as myself, uh, just sang this song and left. But what was, what was fascinating about it was I remember thinking, oh God, I'm really bad. I mean, I, I just like had no, it's not that I was bad. I was singing all the notes, but I just had no sense of character. And yet the song, this is one of those things where the material is so amazing in this particular moment and the costume says so much that even though I know I'm not, I'm like not doing it, it still works. And it was so great in that off-Broadway house, which, you know, it was like 300-ish seats. It was so exciting because I thought, oh, this is such an opportunity because I can really try different things every night, knowing that this material really works so well. That then I started to, so then I slowly started to put in to start to learn the the sort of heightened British accent. And then I learned that I could try to play with how little I could do. And I was watching a lot of Barbra Streisand clips at that time. And I started to incorporate some of the, she was a real inspiration for me in that, just be, you know, coming out there in an incredible outfit and enjoying the sound of your own voice. And <laughs> that, the, the sort of sensual quality that she has while she sings, I started, and her as well, in her early, like, you know, my name is Barbara, black and white TV special, her kind of minimalism. And so I really used the off-Broadway run as my rehearsal. I would say like a month into the run, I started to touch on the my version of the character. And that intimate space to be able to really feel the audience in a way that you can't in the bigger space that I think informed everybody in the show. Same thing with Spring Awakening when we were starting at the Atlantic Theater. You really, because of that intimate space and you really, it's a collective energy, but it's an intimate collective energy. So you can really pick up a lot of nuance, especially when you're developing a new work that if the material serves a larger space and a larger audience, you can then sort of take all those, all that nuance and kind of turn up the volume on it in the bigger space. And it's enriched all the more because you had that time of exploration in the smaller space. Yeah, it takes me to my next question of when you talk at least to actors or aspiring actors about process or method and stuff like that. I mean, for you, it sounds like you find your way through the role. You find it as you go, as opposed to emotional prep or, or, or things like that. And it's such a balance because I've had experiences where, you know, you want to do all the right kind of preparation. And for me, the right kind of preparation is knowing your words and knowing your music and doing your research about the general research about the world of the show. And then for me, that's it. It's frustrating sometimes to work with people who, when, who, people whose process <laughs> gets in the way of the organic process of creating the show in the room. And so I really, for me, I value when everybody knows their lines, when everybody knows their music, when the director has a vision, and then we collectively discover something together in the room, the best way that we all can tell the story together. That's the ultimate thing, as opposed to any one person finding their particular role the way that they tell the story of their particular role is separate from the collaboration of telling the story. You know, if I was speaking to young actors, I would say, don't get hung up on your own role and listen and react a little bit more 
and you can find the role will present itself if you know your lines and you've done your research. The fun of it and the real magic of it is in the interaction with the other people and how the surprises that you find as opposed to the prepared recipe that you've made in your bedroom the night before. It's about discovery. I mean, right. I think the best actors and the best artists are that we watch on stage in TV and film are the ones that are discovering. There's nothing more interesting than when you when you watch an actor discover something on stage, which is why it's totally. so incredible to watch children when they see something for the first time. Which brings me to, you know, there's so much to talk about in so little time. You have three hours for me? <laughs> totally. When uh, Spring Awakening, I love that it started off-Broadway and that had a very long rehearsal and performance time. I mean, it started at the Atlantic, but it started even before the Atlantic. Can you do the five-minute sort of story of Spring Awakening? Oh my gosh, yes. And, I'm, and I, was, I only joined it kind of in the tail end of its development oh, process. Oh, you did? But I know that they did, I want to say it was maybe 1999 or 2000 was the first workshop, maybe even 1998. A bunch of different theater companies were bouncing around. Roundabout was going to do it at one point. 9-11 put things on hold for the show. They did a night at the American Songbook at Lincoln Center that was a huge moment for them. Uh, that I know John Gallagher and Leah Michelle and Skylar Aston and Remy Zakin, those cast members were involved at that time. Kim Grigsby, the music director, who was involved in that time. Michael Cerverus played a role that ended up getting cut, The Masked Man. Through that workshop, the Atlantic Theater picked it up, and that's when I joined. So we did a workshop, a month-long workshop at Baruch College on the Lower East Side. Uh, they fired about five cast members and recast people and shuffled things around and kind of rewrote some songs. Then we did another giant rehearsal process before we started performances at the Atlantic. And then we had a long preview process at the Atlantic where it was new songs and new scenes and all of that. Uh, and then we had a run at the Atlantic. And then we had about four months off before we opened on Broadway in the late fall of 2006. What's it like for you going into, we, we talked a little bit about Hamilton, but something that's being started from scratch, something like, well, Duncan was on the show and, and Gideon was on the show too. And they talked a little bit about the process of working on a new musical from, from start to finish and then moving it to Broadway. Can you talk about your experience about working, what it's like to work on a new musical and having the composer in the room and the director and the whole team building something from from nothing. I would say with Spring Awakening, we were all, the actors were all so young and so hungry and so ready to give 100% that we were just ready to do whatever they said jump and we said how high. So it was a really exciting energy from the cast because everybody was so young and so full of life and emotion and nothing to lose and also no expectation we were just totally blind to the business of the business we were just there it almost was like summer camp that energy on that particular project was really interesting and i would say that we yes the cast yes of course we were quote unquote creating the roles but really we were watching michael and steven Sater and duncan and kim grigsby and bill t jones and Christine Jones, the set designer, and Susan Hilfrey, the costume designer, and Brian. We were watching them, Kevin Adams, the lighting designer. We were watching them 
sort of a young adult team at the height of their game really tries something dangerous and watching Ira Pittleman and Tom Hulse and Tom Hulse was really our like creative producer. And I have, I mean, I have a million stories and a million memories of watching them kind of duke it out as to what was the right way to tell the story and watching Michael pull things out of Duncan and Steven that they, you know, taking their songs and asking them for more and changing the scenes. And I remember being in the, in tech in at the Atlantic on the hayloft swing with Leah Michelle and Ira and Tom having a giant fight about the nudity and the moment. And Ira saying, we can't do this. Like we can't have these kids with the, you know, naked, what, you know, what this is. And, and I remember Tom saying, we're not doing Spring Awakening if we're not, if we don't show this, like this is what this whole show is about. It's about, it's about not shying away from the truth. It's about delivering information, you know, and just that art, that towing that line, which the idea now of being an adult and telling this really intricate story that's, it's like a hotbed of it's, it's, it's masturbation and abortion and sexual repression and rape. And you're telling it with a bunch of young teenage and early 20s actors. I mean, it's like the fact that they had the bravery to go there and do that is now as I get older, I'm like, wow, they did something. <laughs> yes, of course, like we were we were doing it as the actors, but of course we didn't care. We would strip naked and run around the theater if they asked us. And they did it with such, that creative team did it with such, and the produce, producerial team had such class and taste and intelligence. And so getting to observe that at such a young age was life-altering as, a, as an artist. I mean, the show started all of our careers. So career-wise, it was such an amazing thing. But even artistically, it, was, it, it just changed everything for us, each of us personally. Spring Awakening was really one of the first shows that became this, I want to say cult phenomenon, but it, it was. But not only, because when you kind of say cult phenomenon, it's kind of, it sort of limits it to a small audience. But your, your houses were packed every night with screaming uh, young people and screaming adults. I mean, it became a rock concert every evening. Couldn't you remember what, what that feeling was to... Obviously, it, it, it changed from the Atlantic to once you were on Broadway. What was that like, that, to be right in the middle of this phenomenon? It was real. I, I really remember it because it was a slow burn of a phenomenon. And in retrospect, such a gift to all of us because quiet beginning, which we were kind of a dark horse off Broadway. People didn't quite know what to make of it. We had sort of the intellectual audiences it was not a lot of kids off broadway i remember there was some older members of the subscribers to the atlantic theater who would be at one point they considered making the poster a woman with gray hair covering her ears because that is what one woman did during the entire <laughs> show off broadway and we thought oh that's that they thought oh that's the kind of iconic that's the whole point. And then when we started previews on Broadway, we could not sell half of the house, half of the Eugene O'Neill. I remember our stage manager, Heather, coming on the intercom and saying, okay, everyone, so you're going to see a lot of purple velvet. That was the color of, that's the color of the seats. You're going to see a lot of purple velvet, but just keep in mind, there is 500 people out there. So that is 
you know, basically twice the size of the audience of the Atlantic. I think that the Eugene O'Neill holds like 1,100 people. So it was less than half full. She was trying to like say, but you know, just think of it in perspective. And then the New York Times gave us a great review on opening night. And that lasted us for about two and a half months. And then the show started to slip again. And it wasn't until the Tony Awards that it became a phenomenon. We won Best Musical. And that's when the kids started really coming out for us. And then it became a sellout ticket. And it was a huge sensation. And it was great because we, even though we were so young, we did really, as a, as a collective group, very much appreciate the experience while it was happening because it was very much an uphill climb. And I even remember going into my dressing room and on the first day of tech rehearsal and Michael Mayer coming in and it said, God, Michael, I've never had my own dressing room. I don't know how I'm going to decorate it. And he said, honey, I wouldn't decorate it because you don't know how long you're going to be here. That was the sort of mentality that we all had. This is, this is probably not going to last. This is probably, this is great that we're even here. There's 800 people above the title of the producers in order to get this on Broadway. And when we won the Tony and and those 800 people took the stage, you realize what a risk it was. You talk about it, the phenomenon, you talk about all the young people who, who helped make Spring Awakening this colossal hit. Your appreciation for the fans is something that I really marvel at one of my seven times walking out of the theater to the little shop, your patience and kindness with your fans after the show is, is really beautiful, Jonathan. You know, you, you never seem to take it for granted. You stop and you talk to everybody and, you know, which also brings me to, you know, where we are today with, I was just thinking about you signing autographs and taking pictures with people and you touch on what also, I would use that word, that phenomenon is, after the show, and then where you think we are. I think that, you know, in regards to the After Spring Awakening, all the, you know, signing autographs for me personally, all the way up to signing autographs after Little Shop of Horrors, I used to get autographs at the stage door when I would see shows in high school. And I really remember everything about that experience. And so I think I personally value that because I remember how much it meant to me when I was getting autographs. And it's kind of as simple as that. And it is such a easy way to, it's the same thing with like making these voice memos for little kids for being the voice in Frozen. It's like, it's like one of the perks of our job is we get to have that little effect on people, you know, if they're theater fans or whatever, it brings, the joy goes both ways so that it's really fulfilling for me because I remember getting autographs. And then, yeah, I mean, as far as like what's happening now and what's happening today, I am like dying to get back into a theater to watch a play. I'm dying to get back on a stage. I mean, I feel like I'm going to have to do some serious spit therapy because I spit so much when I'm on stage. And now people are gonna like be horrified that, you know, it's this new mentality of germs. Uh, Cause I, especially in Little Shop, I mean, I'd, I'd never been in a theater that was so small where I could see people's faces in the first front four rows. And people used to tell me like, oh, you spit on me, but I'd never actually seen the reaction 
uh, positive and negative of spitting on people in the audience. So I'm going to have to figure out how to get, the, you know, wear a plastic mask over my face or something. <laughs> I uh, didn't mind. But your enunciation, actually, we were all like this. We, we, did, we didn't mind. <laughs> we didn't mind I appreciate that. But, I mean, Thursday, right? So they closed all the theaters down that Thursday, but there was still some off-Broadway shows happening because it was still, you could, could still collect in groups of 300 or something or 400. Right. And that Thursday night before everything shut down on Friday, I went to go see Dana H at the, the Vineyard, the Deirdre O'Connell, Lucas Nath play. Yeah. And I was blown away. And, and it was so weird because the audience was about, it was a sold out run, but because of all that was happening, it was only about three fourths full. And it was the last time I was in the theater before all this began. And it was the energy in the theater was for Deirdre when she came on stage, like she was a superhero because she was coming out to perform this play in such a kind of questionable moment. And it just lifted the spirits of everyone. And you know, we were all crying and everything. But my hope and belief is that, that when this is over, that the places like the theater where we commune are going to explode with people just like dying. I hope that that's the way that it goes. I know that for me, I, I, that's how I feel is that I'm itching to get back into a group of people and have a collective experience. That's what the theater is. The, the entire purpose of the theater is anti-social distancing. It's the opposite. And so that I'm looking forward to getting back to that, definitely. They close the doors, they turn the lights out, and you're sitting so close to somebody. That is the beauty of theater. You're all experienced. Yeah. Thing. everybody is so close together and it's it's terrifying to think that we we don't have that connection now that social connection it is yeah we're doing everything via zoom and we're everything is so impersonal now we're all craving for a human touch and human connection which is why we go to the theater to watch behavior to be a part of human behavior it's terrifying i mean i i, I feel like for me personally there's so many people that are doing such heroic work in the hospitals on the, even the package deliverers. And the, there's so many people on the front lines that are really taking care of us. My heart goes out to them and I'm terrified for them and grateful for them. For me personally, the experience is making me value in a positive way. It's making me connection when that does happen at some point, I know that I'm going to value it so much more since it was taken away from me for such a long period of time. Coronavirus is absolutely horrible. And it's nice to be reminded that those experiences are privilege. And when we, when we get them back, in a way you don't know what you've got till it's gone kind of a situation. We start taking things for granted, theater and yeah. relationships and family. And it's when you start thinking, oh, if I ever get to see that person again, because I have a couple of friends who are sick, you know, and they're okay, not good, but you know, I'm gonna make sure that I put my arms around them and, and tell them. And mm. you know, I, it's uh, making us appreciate a lot, a lot more, especially the art of theater. You know, um, we like to touch on the submission that you did. You did this great show, which I love the submission at the Lucia Lortel Theater. And we like to highlight from the Lortel can you just talk about two or three minutes about your experience in that show? And I thought I loved that show. I thought it was great. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad you saw it. Uh, it's a, it was Jeff Talbot's first play oh, uh, in New York. Yeah. And Walter Bobby directed it. Uh, incredible director. We had a great cast. 
And it was produced by MCC, and that was the first time I'd ever worked with them. And one of the great things about Off-Broadway is that you get to do material that isn't necessarily the subscribers. People are coming to see something intimate, something artistic, maybe something dangerous, maybe something a little bit more outside of the box. And the work I've done at The Public or at, at Playwrights and with MCC was another example of just like one of those theater companies that is putting something really in the little synopsis of that play is what if I wrote a play under a name that looked like an African-American female's name It's for the Human Festival. The play gets picked up and then he hires this African-American woman to play him at the festival, even though he wrote the play. So there's a lot about representation and class and the stories that we're allowed to tell and the stories that we aren't maybe allowed to tell and why that is. And it was a very like hot button issue kind of play. And I remember the audience and Bettina, I've played opposite Bettina Wesley and Eddie K. Thomas and Will Rogers. And I remember every night the audience gasping at certain moments of the play. And it was just like the perfect example of it just a perfect off-Broadway, off-Broadway experience. Yeah, and you were, I love, you go back and forth between, you know, you'll do a, a big musical and you'll come back off-Broadway. I love the versatility in, in your work and the things that you choose, you know, which brings me to Mindhunter, which I rewatched the other season, scares the shit out of me every time. <laughs> I, I love Holden Ford. I love... David Fincher. I love, I love this show. I'd love for you to talk about the experience of working on this character and the work that you've done with David. And Sure. I mean, I can, it's funny because like there is a, there's a correlation because in off Broadway, you're really empowering the artist. I mean, Playwrights Horizons is called Playwrights Horizons because the playwright is the star of the show. I mean, that's your, you're looking to watch new work being developed. The public theater is for the people. The Atlantic Theater Company has a whole range of directors and designers and writers that are a part of their roster. And so interestingly with Netflix in certain projects and in certain ways, there is this correlation because with Netflix, because David had created House of Cards and kind of put Netflix original programming on the map, he's given so much artistic liberty. In this particular experience with Mindhunter and with David, David was in charge. David was in charge of the scripts. David was in charge of the casting. David was the showrunner. David directed most of it. And we did these long, which you would never get on a network show, these long 15-page dialogue scenes with these serial killers that was a very kind of cerebral deep dive into the psychology of both serial killers and also the ways in which you get people to open up and tell the truth and figure out if they are telling the truth. The second season dove more into the specific Atlanta child murders case. But for me as an artist, it's why I love working off Broadway. It's why I love working with David is when you get to work with original creative voices and allow their brilliance to help you grow. And my experience with David was that he just completely transformed me as an actor in so many ways. We don't have much time. I, mean, I could go through the specific ways. I could go through the micro ways and the macro ways, but even led all the way to me doing Little Shop off Broadway and coming back to the theater. And 
hearing David's voice in my head at occasional moments when I was on stage. I told him that too, because David came, David and his wife, Sion, who's his producing partner and was our producer of Mindhunter, they came and sat in the front row at the West Side Theater. So I stood all over them as well. Uh, <laughs> they came to see the show and I told him afterwards, you know, it really, when you work with people like David or like Michael Mayer or the amazing creative geniuses, directors and writers and producers in the New York theater, you take a little something with you every time you get to have those opportunities. And I think that works for the artists and I think that works for the audiences as well. And it is why I keep going back to off-Broadway because you really get that pure artistic integrity sort of and intention in creating of the work. The perfect way to end. Rob, I could talk to you for hours. Same. What a pleasure. I I am uh, a huge fan. I can't say enough about your work and your craft and how open and honest you are about talking about it. I'm so grateful that you gave us this hour today and please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Thank you. You too. Can't wait till we're in a theater together again. I I can't wait to see you do something again. I, I, I'm so excited. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel. While this pandemic goes on, we are asking our listeners to please consider donating to the Actors Fund and actorsfund.org to help support theater artists. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and pressed by Chris Kanarek. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown. House manager is Charles Shipman. Box office manager is Daigoro Hirohata. Social media by Mia Radio. Thanks to Nancy Hurwitz. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment.